All right, so we're kind of making our way through Genesis, and um, I think tonight, uh, just maybe a dozen verses out of chapter 6 is going to be about all we can chew on, because there's some, well, just some crazy things to try and comprehend and get your head around in in the realm of uh, spiritual things and what was going on here, and some of these passages are debated by a lot of people we like and that have different opinions about a lot of it. So it's always going to be one of them things where I'm just going to try and stick with the Word and let it say what it says and, and not go beyond that. Um, again, the rule here is if you can get past Genesis 1 verse 1, then pretty much anything else should be easy to kind of, or at least hopefully possible, to digest a little bit. And so um, let's just read through 1 through 12. Verses 1 through 12 in Genesis chapter 6. So now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So that the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of this earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and the birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, And the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And then he goes on in the rest of the chapter preparing the ark and the flood. And we'll probably do the rest of 6, 7, and 8 next week, Lord willing. I'd much rather go home to be with him, but if not, we'll be here. Um. Man multiplied on the face of the earth. Uh, Some estimate uh, by just going through those charts. By the way, if you didn't get them, um, there's like five I put of those uh, timelines and then the names in Genesis that spell out the gospel. I put five or six back there thinking that's all, but they disappeared. So now there's a bunch more back there. Um, I guess a lot of people on Sunday came and took them. But uh, if you're looking for those. But... If you look through there, and, and some do that, and some estimate that at the time of the flood, there was probably anywhere from, um, some say as much as 700,000, uh, or uh, 700 million, up to 7 to 10 billion people on the earth. If you think of you know having sons and daughters and living over 900 years in, in that uh, time period, many, many, many could have populated the earth. Um, I tend to lean on answers in Genesis, uh, you know, Ken Ham and the guys uh, with the Ark in Kentucky. And uh, they have the guy there, the DNA guy there, uh, Nathaniel Jeanson, we talked about him. He, they estimate probably somewhere between 1 to 4 billion. Uh, 
because since there were much longer lifespans, but also there were likely diseases, and then there was violence that filled the earth. And so not everybody necessarily lived to be 900 years back then. The genealogy we read up to Noah, many did. But, um, but then in verse, um, verse 2, we have this interesting subject of the sons of God. Um, so who were the sons of God? The word is Ben Elohim. And if you want, we're just going to do a bunch of little skipping around to get a definition Looking at the board there, it's Job 1. Um, the only other places in scriptures where that particular phrase, Ben Elohim, um, is in Job 1, 6, 2, 1, and uh, 38, 7. And it's interesting. Um, you know, Job was described in the first part of this chapter, all that he had his righteousness before the Lord. And, um, you know, he would go out and sacrifice uh, the next morning on behalf of his kids, just in case they got in trouble the night before. He was a righteous man before the Lord. But in uh, verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Okay, so uh, we're talking about since the fall, we talked about Satan in weeks past, how he drew a third of, the Bible says a third of the stars in Revelation, he drew with his tail down. Well, that's basically a third of the angelic realm. At that, you know, when he fell, he drew a third of the angels with him, became the demons. So Satan's with this crowd. I don't think it's going to be Gabriel and Michael and anybody else, you know, of the angels of the Lord, because it says he came with them when they presented themselves to the Lord whereas the angels that had not fallen are in the presence of the Lord at all time. They always behold his face, right? The angels that look over us, the Bible says, always behold his face. And so these guys came to present themselves to the Lord. So leaving it at that, just to say that uh, probably he came with the demons. And uh, it says, uh, um, you know, there's more to Job, but let's skip to next uh, chapter, verse 1, and it's kind of the same thing. After Satan had wreaked his, his havoc on Job's life, he came back and, and he says again, there was a day when the sons of God, second time this phrase is used, or third I should say, came to present themselves, same type of thing. But if you go to 38, verse 7, Job 38, verse 7, now we go back in, in history a little bit. You know, this is when Job had reached his end and, and all, and, and he'd given up. And the Lord then calls to him and answers him for all that the rest of Job is about. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. And so he goes back to creation. He goes back to the beginning. He says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? And to what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? Notice when it, the morning stars sang together, and here it is, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. All of them. Is that the same sons of God that's in, in uh, Genesis 6? Well, this would have been when he's making 
creating the world. Create, you know, and before the foundations, he's talking about at the beginning. Uh, we don't know when Satan fell exactly. It sure seems like it would have to be before Genesis chapter 3, obviously. But was it before the foundations of the world or was it in there somewhere? Um, so at this point, they're called the sons of God. And it says, together with the morning stars. And again, in Revelation, he points out the stars were the um, angels that Satan drew a third away with him. And so this is all that we have in Scripture regarding the sons of God. Um, if you compare it to Genesis 11, uh, verse 5, if the language was going to be anything other than fallen ang angels, if it was going to be anything other than spirits or demons, in that passage, uh, Genesis 6, verse 2, it would be the same as Genesis 11, verse 5, where he says, But the Lord came down to see the city, and the tower, which the first time this word appears, is the sons of men. Not the word men, but the, the phrase sons of men. Okay, and so, um, and that is um, Ben Adam. So comparing the two, you've got Ben Elohim and Ben Adam were the sons of men. Sons of God, sons of men. Um, the reason I do this is because you just want to take the language of the Bible so you know this is a controversial subject. I'm just going to give you what the Bible says. Who were the sons of God? In this passage in Genesis 6, this is very interesting stuff that they could come, demons, and be able to have children with this, the daughters of men. And uh, we read, we'll read a little bit about them and see it. But that, I'm just going to leave it there, what the Scripture has to say about it. Um, there is more. But just to leave it at that, it would be the, uh, the angels that fell uh, with Satan. And uh, these are called the demons. The difference between the sons of men and the sons of God in the New Testament, go to Jude 6 and verse 7, verses 6 and 7. And again, there's a comparison. If you're going to make a, a list or if you're going to you know, put the contrast between these two, um, what happened to the men and women who perished and who sinned? And what happened differently to the angels? And so looking at verse 6, it says, The angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and as the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, and gone after strange flesh, and are set forth in his example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Okay, so did Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, as it says, did Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's not something different. They did the same thing. They went after strange flesh. They did things that were not, not natural. The word not kept means they didn't attend to or care for their first estate. The first estate means their origins, their beginning. This is talking very much like uh, angels that fell, but also angels that left heaven and came down in the same way that these guys committed sexual uh, immorality. That's the, the contrast there or the, the, the comparison there between Sodom and Gomorrah and what these guys did. They did not keep their original place. The word left there is forsake. The word habitation is their abode, their dwelling. 
used also in scriptures of the body. You know, our, our abode. We live in these tents, these, these uh, uh, carnal bodies or these, this flesh, man, human bodies. And strange simply means the other. It means not of the same nature. And so this is something different. Daughters of, daughters of men and the sons of God. But it says here that they're reserved for eternal fire. It doesn't say anything about what we're going to read here in verse, 1 Peter 3. If you want to go back a couple pages from Jude. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. Again, drawing the contrast. And because it's just one of those you know, controversial subjects, I'm just giving you everything the Bible has to say, and you can take it and do what you want with it, you know, as far as following after some of the different commentaries and speculations. I'll tell you one thing, and we talked about this in Genesis, if you're going to use science as your foundation and try and make Scripture fit, it's going to give you all kinds of weird ideas. If you're going to take Scripture and say, no science, you need to conform to what Scripture says, well, then you're going to have God's testimony. Because, again, Genesis 1, verse 1, he created all this. Uh, there was no science there. There was God's wisdom. Wisdom with, was there with the Lord when he created all things. So First Peter three eighteen through 20, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in his flesh, and the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through the water. You catching that? When the Lord went and he took captivity captive, he went into Sheol, he went into uh, descended in the, you know, and preached to these spirits. Now, he's not talking about the demons. Demons can't get saved. But he preached to those uh, that were there. And when he did, and it says those that were disobedient and uh, in, in the days of Noah, well, what does that mean? That, you know what? They actually got to hear the gospel. They actually, those that perished in the flood, because you think of the people who say, well, how could such a loving God do such a cruel thing as to wipe out all of humanity in a flood? Well, you know what? Jesus went and preached to them. They heard the gospel. They had a chance. And uh, from that place, and then it says he took captivity captive. So whether or not, uh, again, that's controversial. Can, can you, you know, now that Jesus has done that and raised from the dead, now the gospel is here and wants to die, then the judgment. But at that time, they were long dead at least in our time, timing of uh, years and things. But uh, he went and preached to them and took captivity captive. So, stuff to think on. Now, Second Peter 2, 4, a couple pages back to the right, the difference, why they're not talking about those spirits in prison, he's not talking about demons um, or those sons of God before the flood. Uh, 2 verse 4, it says, For God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness, and that's it, to be reserved for judgment. They weren't preached to. So the, you know, again, we talk about this. Hell was not created for man. The lake of fire was not created for man. 
the Lord never intended the lake of fire to be for, for any human being to go to. That was created for Satan and for his angels. And those that disbelieve, disbelieve those that refuse the Lord, those that, whose names are not written in the book of life, at the final, final judgment, they together, death, Hades, and all those whose names are not written in the book of life, will be cast into the lake of fire. And um, so going back to Genesis 6, um, verse 2, they saw the daughters of men were beautiful. They took wives for themselves, whoever they choose. And then we'll skip 3 for now and looking at verse 4. Interesting thing takes place. What is born to this union is unique. God makes a point of it. It's not normal. It's not what should have been around. It's not what anybody ever saw before. And it's verse 4. It says, There were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, notice the, the context is, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So the giants, the word there is Nephilim. Um, they were there, it says, after. And it says, when the daughters of men bore the sons to the children of God. Now, the only other place the word Nephilim shows up in the Bible is Numbers 13.33. And this is when the children of Israel went in and spied out the land. And they were uh, um, going in to see what was there. And they come back and they says, these guys, they saw us and they thought we were grasshoppers. We saw them and we looked like grasshoppers in their sight. You know, and so by definition, the word of loan there um, was that these guys were giants. They're either really big, or they're really tall, or they're both. And they were also called, at that time, Anak. And the Anakim, if you haven't heard of them, the word Anak means neck. And it means a tribe of giant people, and they were scattered throughout the Old Testament. Canaan, uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Deuteronomy 3.11, we talked about it Sunday uh, a week or so back, um, talking about Og, the king of Bashan, had a 13-foot bed. And it's in context of talking about how big he was, they described his bed. So it wasn't just a little guy that felt like he wanted a big bed. And um, it was, uh, he lived in a city, it says, of high walls and gates. And in the context, it says he was also a, de a descendant of the Rephaim, Okay, those, that's the word, Rephaim is the word for giant. Now, um, the giants in verse 4 are called Nephilim. In Numbers 13, 33, they're called Nephilim. Everywhere else, the word giant is Rephaim. And there was an area that they dwelt in. Genesis 14 talks about the area of the Rephaim. In fact, it was the valley of Rephaim where Goliath uh, came out and David slew Goliath. Genesis 14, uh, they called them Rephaim, they called them Zumzim, Emim. Deuteronomy 2, the Anakim, or the Zanzumin. Um, and again, Goliath and all was called. But it says, verse 4 again, the daughters of men bore children to them. And there are many ways this doesn't fit with science or biology or physics. So who were these giants? What held them together? The guys that argue against this actually being extremely large individuals say that the human structure isn't designed in the gravity and with the weight and, the, and all that to be able to handle that. The body isn't built for that. And so it had to be something 
you know, points to something having to be supernatural. The Word of God doesn't really give a whole lot more on how these giants came to be, but there's plenty about it in the Word of what they were, where they were, and how Moses had to take them out. And when they were fighting in the land of Canaan, they ran into them a lot. And again, David and Goliath. So their sons, it says, were mighty men of old, men of renown. The word mighty, strong, brave, mighty. Of old is interesting. It means of long duration, um, perpetual or ancient. How long after Adam and began to have sons and daughters? How long after that did maybe these, uh, these uh, uh, things start to take place? If they'd been around for quite a while, that they were actually known in verse 4 as being men of renown, perpetual. They've been around a while. They're part of the ancients. So uh, again, it was about 1,500 years from creation to the flood. And uh, through that time, we don't know. But it says they were well-known by all. Uh, so it's hard to think about giants, real giants in the earth. And then also the earth so filled with violence. And yet Jesus said it was as the day of no, days of Noah, so shall be this coming of the Son of Man. Um, you know, he is the Son of God. Not among these sons of gods that are talked about in Genesis 6, but he also calls himself the Son of Man. And that is because he is the Messiah of God, incarnate, man, in, you know, God incarnate, establishing his humanity, you know, fulfilling prophecy, Daniel 7, 13, 14. Jesus said about himself, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to sleep. He was fully human, fully God. Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and they call him a glutton and a friend of sinners. Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. Betrayed, suffered, rejected, and delivered into the hands of sinful man in Luke 24. If you want, if you are taking notes or you want, these aren't things I was going to go read to, but he's also and clearly the Son of God. And that's John 3, 13 through 18, John 5, 18 through 27, and John 6, 26 through 58, clearly. Um, you know, those would be something to write down. You get the Jehovah's Witnesses coming to your door. Well, he wasn't the son of God. You know, he was Lucifer's brother. Or he's just another angel, just another created being. Well, that's not what the Bible says, and that's clearly not what Jesus said about himself. In fact, just going even back to Genesis 1, we talked about that. It was Elohim. You know, let us make man in our image. And the Lord was with the Father and the Holy Spirit at creation. And so, again, these are tools when you need to talk to the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses, or these days there's a lot of them out there. Oprah, if you get a chance. Um, <laughs> so verse 3, back to there. And it says, The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And just about the 120 years it's likely he's talking about in about 120 years, that's when the flood's going to come. And there are those that say, well, you know, that just has to do with the limitations now. You can't live to be 900 years no more, so it's only your, nobody's going to live past 120. Well, there's, I guess there's some uh, gal in Argentina or something. She's 122 and still rides a bicycle or something. Anyway, I, I had to look it up. These are in the commentaries. But, um, so, but it's right in the middle of 2 and 4, right? 
And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Right in the middle of all this talk about these sons of God, but the word spirit, my spirit, he says, that means breath, but it means the mind of the Lord, the desires. In the context, it means his temper and patience. Not temper as in losing his temper, but the temper that he has in light of what's going on and the patience that he has. But he says he, he won't strive. He can't strive with man forever. And the word strive, especially in context with men, means to judge, contend, plead, requite. And really in context simply means to quarrel. The Lord's trying. The Lord's speaking. The Lord, they know. You know, the Lord has written, they, they know that they were created beings. There was no theory of evolution back then. There was just full-on violence. Remember Lamech last week? Lamech, descendant from Cain, kills two people and says, yeah, I killed two people. Come and try and take me out. Just like Cain, you'll get 77 times. You know, and so the violence, the disregard for the Lord was all over, at the, all over the place at this time. It says the earth was filled with violence. So what is the reason? What is his reason that he can't strive? His spirit is sorry. He can't strive with men anymore because man is just flesh, he says, which he opened to take a rib out, which the two shall be joined together in marriage, one flesh. But in 6.12, he says, all flesh has become corrupt. That which he created, that's what he made in his own image, in his own likeness, now has become completely corrupted. Verse 5 and 6 says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a, what a passage. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Now, God is not a man that he should have regrets, uh, nor should he you know, be surprised how anything turns out. He knows the beginning from the end. And that word sorry, your King James, if you're looking at it, says he repented himself of it. Well, God's not a God that needs to repent. Like I said, that he would have any regrets or made any mistakes or, or was caught off guard by something that took place. You know, he made man on the earth. The word sorry there... Um, can be translated repent or have an attitude of uh, contrition. But it also means just to console oneself and to suffer grief. And the word grieved there means to be hurt, to be caused to, to be hurt, to cause pain, to vex, to displease. And it says in God's heart. Um, you know, again, uh, what a thing that that which he created Man in his own image, he was well pleased. He saw it was very good. Now has fallen and it's gone completely corrupt. I mean, what is that? What is that? The, you know, and truth is, any, any given one of us, left to our own selves and our own devices, the thoughts, every intent and thoughts of our hearts would be only evil continually, right? There's no good in us. We're just, that's just exactly what we are. We're human. We're we're uh, made in his image, but we've gone co completely corrupt. You know, you can hurt me personally. You can hurt, you know, take me out if you want. Uh, but the heart, he's talking about his heart was grieved. It's different when my 
kid or my grandkid hurts me. It's different. There's a sorrow there. It's uh, different, not that they ever have, not to that degree. Uh, but the example being of what the Lord's heart is sorrowful about, what it's grieved about. You know, and if you have no kids, a spouse. And if you have no spouse, the brothers in the fellowship or your brother or sisters. You know, that kind of hurt, that kind of sorrow, that kind of grief that comes from ones that God is the God of love and he created us to love. He gave us family, he gave us friends, he, and, and he gave us brothers and sisters in the Lord. Because he's a God of love, he gave us those to love, right? And so we're Christians, we're believers, we're followers of Jesus Christ, we're born again by the Spirit of God. What makes us different from those that are not? Or what makes us different than the world or what they call the Gentiles in the New Testament? Go to Ephesians 4, how God's heart can be sorrowful and grieved. The very heart of a God of love. Verses 17 through 19. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their hearts, who being past feeling, having given themselves over to lewdness, to work uncleanness with greediness, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. You have put off, well, I went too far. We're doing uh, up to 19. Um, just the example there, uh, the walk, they walk in the vanity of their minds, the emptiness, they just whatever the mind wants to do. Isn't that what, what he said to Job? The, the thoughts of their hearts were evil continually. Their understanding is darkened. In other words, you don't even think straight. You, know, you don't even understand what you're doing. You're just violent. You know, there's no understanding in violence. The earth was filled with violence. There's no understanding there. Alienated from, through, from God, it says, through ignorance. And then it says they're blind in their hearts. Um, their past feeling, you know, that when you talk about in the Old Testament, Jeremiah talks about, you know, you're not even ashamed anymore of what the Israelites were doing. They weren't even ashamed anymore. They didn't know how to feel shame. It was, they were beyond feeling. There was no problem just plowing right into lasciviousness and uncleanness and greed. And we were, we were the same way. But then we learned of Christ, it says. And so verse 20, I was going to pick up, but, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on a new man which is created according to God in the true righteousness and holiness. So we're taught by who? Well, we're taught by Jesus, right? When we get saved, who was it we heard? Well, we heard the Lord. You know, it may have come through a believer who was sharing. It may have been the Holy Spirit working in your heart, but you know, make no mistake, it's the Lord who teaches us. It's the Lord who, who we hear. And what is that truth that he's talking about that's in Jesus? Well, he says, put off the old man. You know, he died for us. Don't, why walk in that anymore? What does it do? Just like the flood, it grows corrupt. It has deceitful lust, just like the thoughts and intents of those guys. How does this play out in our lives as believers? Well, that's 25 
verse 25. And therefore, putting away lying, let each of one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You know, what good does it do you to sit and lie to, to a, each of us, you know, or any of us here? I mean, we're your brothers and sisters. How far does that get you? There's no reason. And, uh, you know, why lie to your neighbor at home? You, then you tell him you go to Coward Chapel and they show up here at Coward Chapel and they look around and go, well, this guy lies to me and here you are. And so it's just, why do that? And, and so he says, uh, where was I? Don't, don't need to lie. That's the first thing. Uh, putting away all lying. Okay, and then 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. And it says, no, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, building up one another, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So, you know, he's, he's talking about how it plays out in our lives. Um, notice anger shows up. Um, don't let the sun go down on your, your wrath. How, how does that give place to the devil? You know, when, when you carry something like that, he's going to talk about it a little bit in 31. But, uh, you know, how does that give place to the devil? Remember Jesus said that, or the uh, Bible says that something that hinders your prayers is bitterness and it's, or, or how, you, how you treat one another. It's going to hinder your prayers. And so that, that has that, that aspect of it. it. It basically makes it so that you're giving place to the enemy to do what he wants with you because you're, you're full of anger. You know, it says, be angry and do not sin. You know, in other words, don't let it be angry too long. You know, you might have a just reason, but don't sin. As soon as you realize it, to get it under control, if you will, or to temper it, call it in the name of the Lord. Get out of the room if you've got to get out of the room. Uh, but then don't let the sun go down or give place to, that, to the devil. And then there's obvious, don't steal. Why steal? You know, the, Lord's, the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, that doesn't seem like much because so does, you know, you know, some ranch in Texas. But uh, he owns all things. He owns the hills that the cattle are on. The Lord created all things. He created all the gold and all the earth and all the oil and anything else you want. And he says that's just a tent a two-man pup tent, and for what we have coming for us and the glory and, and all, why steal? Our Father is loaded, and he's got us being content right now, and as soon as you're content, you know, you don't need anymore. It's contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Um, so, verse 30, and then one more, verse 29, don't let a corrupt word uh, proceed out of your mouth, but what is good and necessary for edification. Again, that which we say is so important, the tongue. But verse 30, notice this. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for that day of redemption. That word grieve in the Greek, now instead of the Hebrew, same thing, sorrowful, sorry. Affect with sadness to cause grief to offend, to make one uneasy, to cause one a scruple. I like that when I had to look up scruple. 
because I've heard of people that don't have any scruples, and I didn't really know what that meant. But it says to cause one a scruple, and that word scruple means to offend one's conscience or their principles. So if you're going to cause somebody a scruple, all right, to grieve, to grieve the Lord by offense, what is the significance? Well, it's the Spirit of God who dwells in us till that day. It says he sealed us. Um, Is he going to ever leave us? Well, no. He won't. It's a seal. It's a seal that cannot be broken. That's the Holy Spirit that the Lord gave us. Is he going to kill us like he did the violent ones and the wicked ones back in the days of Noah? Well, no, because he already, Jesus already laid down his life and died in our place, you know, once and for all. And this is why it's such a sorrow. This is why to the Holy Spirit, for us to walk around willy-nilly, just walking after the flesh, hanging on to accusations he talks about here, uh, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. How? By letting all that bitterness and all that wrath and all that anger, we're talking about anger again, um, you know, how we treat one another is what grieves or blesses the Holy Spirit, grieves or blesses the Lord. It's, it's really right there, plain. Um, what a sorrow. You know, hatred, bitterness, basically the word bitterness simply means just a bitter hatred. What did Jesus say hatred was in the heart? It's murder. What was the wickedness going on at the times of Noah? Violence throughout the world. You don't realize it, but the things we say and the do and the attitudes we have towards one another, it's in this world we don't think of it that much. But those attitudes are the things that are, are, you know, if you're allowing bitterness, if you're allowing that anger and that hatred, that grieves the Holy Spirit. Um, So how should we treat one another? Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you. The fruit of the Spirit, and when we fail, what does it say? There's kindness, there's tenderness, there's forgiveness. And there's a bit of that in Genesis chapter 6. If you want to go back, verse 8, said the Lord was sorry he made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart, so he said, I'll destroy man who I've created from the face of the earth. Man, the fact that Jesus went to prison and preached, it just, you know, it just blows me away. When you're, when you're studying all the references in the New Testament that have to do with Noah, and you come across that, it just, my, it just blew me away that these guys, uh, when people like to say that they do not uh, believe a loving God could do such a thing, it just is amazing that they still heard the gospel and had the chance. Um, so I will destroy man whom I created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I'm sorry I made all of them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, verse 8. Noah found grace. Now that's the first time in the Bible that that word grace is found. And it does simply mean favor. It does simply mean just God chose and favored him. Uh, verse 9 through 12 says, This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah is just a man, perfect in his generation. And he walked with God. He was a just man. 
it says, and perfect. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. The earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth indeed, for it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted in their way. But what is verse 9? It says he was a just man. Um, you know, he found favor. The word just means, uh, the first thing it means is lawful. Well, there was no law yet, was there? Um, uh, he was righteous. He was correct. He was doing what was right. Um, you know, it couldn't have been because he was keeping the sacrifice of the law. Now, he did sacrifice, and I believe from what we learn about uh, Cain and Abel, and when the Lord slew an animal to clothe Adam and Eve, that there were sacrifices. And we saw that with Cain and Abel. And that could have been carrying on. Could have been something Enoch did. Doesn't say. Now, after the flood, first thing Noah does is sacrifice. And we'll look at that but um, in the weeks ahead. But there was no law at the time. There was no Levitical law. So he says he was a just man, lawful, righteous, correct, just doing the right thing. And it says he was perfect in his generation. And now you know in the New Testament the word perfect is teleos, and that means complete. It means uh, the whole thing is there. There's no parts missing. It's entire. And that's exactly what this word means in the Hebrew as well translated perfect and again we don't think of you know perfect as just uh being complete so much we always think of that gleaming you know without a single fault and completely uh better and best of anything and everything that's out there and but the word really means complete and it means sound it means wholesome it means unimpaired akin and innocent having integrity and the interesting definition is it keeps with the truth uh, and the facts. It keeps with the facts. You know, just, just the facts, ma'am. You know, and so much, you know, again, you're not going to turn on the evening news and get anywhere close to that. Just the truth and just the facts. They're going to be told what to think about it all the time. But it says that he walked with God. And that's the same as Enoch, right? Enoch walked with God and did not die, but God took him because Enoch pleased the Lord. We read that in Hebrews 11, and that's where we're going to go for our last passage today, tonight. First time that word just in Genesis verse 6, verse 9, that word just, it's the first time that shows up in the Bible. First time that word perfect shows up in the Bible. Um, so Hebrews 11, and again, we're going through Genesis, and as we go through the Old Testament, the Lord tarries, we'll be... Pretty much you could leave a bookmark in Hebrews 11 because when we want to learn what the Lord has to say about these guys in the New Testament, that's where we go, the hall of faith. So this one, verse 7, says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of these things, not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. There's a lot here. Um, just starting from the, the last and going backwards, the fact that he did it condemned the world. If he had not obeyed God, would God have completely wiped out all of humanity and started over? Interesting thought, but he didn't. He obeyed God, and God again preserved for himself as always, there's always a remnant, there's always a witness, there's always a few. The Lord will always have 
one that belongs to him. And so, and then, but, but by faith it says being divinely warned, we read about that, God said to him. But then it says he, he feared God with a godly fear. He reverenced, circumspect is what that word means. Be circumspect. Stand in awe. And says uh, he, was, he was warned. And he believed the warning. He believed the prophecy that was going to be coming and uh, what was going to take place. Never having seen rain before, you know, remember we studied in Genesis 1 and 2, the, the, the firmament, the waters, and then the firmament above the heavens. And, the, and it says the mist is what watered all the surface of the earth. How everything was growing was by the mist. It's very likely, very possible that there was never seen a cloud There was never seen rain until this time. 1,500 years after creation, God saw fit. Whatever it was, you can speculate on the science if you want about the canopy being uh, blocking the sun's rays if in fact it was a canopy. Maybe it was just the storehouses of the heavens and the Lord just let it come for the flood. But it says that he uh, believed God. He feared God being warned. Never saw anything like that before. And that even if he built this big ark, and there's all kinds of speculation on what the ark was, you know, and could have just been square, squared off on the corners. It wasn't built to travel. It was just built to float. Um, but, uh, and the dimensions are all given to us and all, but not whether or not it was curved or round or had a bow and a stern or anything like that. Um, but he had to have the faith that somehow this monstrous thing that he was building that probably weighed maybe a ton or two, I don't know, I've never been to the thing in Kentucky to see what they say about uh, what the approximate weight of this thing was, but this thing going to come off the ground? And so he had never seen anything like this. By faith, he built this thing, built this ark. And he said that he had a righteousness now because he believed that righteousness that's by faith. And the application again for us and this is when we go through Hebrews and we study any one of these patriarchs, any one of these in the hall of faith, the application is always the same, and that's Hebrews 13, 11, 13 through 16, and chapter 12, 1 and 2. And we'll end with that. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declared plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they call it to mind that country from which they had come, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And so in verse or chapter 12, it says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Well, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word as always, and um, Lord, we thank you that you've given us that hope, and you've put in us your Holy Spirit sealing us for that day. And Lord, I just pray that you'd be ministering to our hearts to, to, to have a conviction about how we live, 
and how we treat one another. And Lord, just that you would give us a continual reminder of, of uh, that's what grieves your Holy Spirit is to, to hang on to bitterness and to hang on to all the slander and all the, the anger and whatever hurts that we've endured, Father. I just pray we could put it to bed before we go to bed. And Lord, that we'd be able to uh, just find your mercies new every morning and walk before you. So we lift that up to you and we ask that you'd bless your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.